This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Budu from Axios, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. According to the HuffPost, this year, Congress has only written 21 laws. It's on pace to be the least productive gathering of lawmakers since the Great Depression, but they found other things to do. He didn't see any cameras. He didn't think anybody was paying attention, but Claudia from NPR was paying attention. I did not run and hit the guy. I did not kidney punch him. If I would hit somebody, they would know I hit But despite the political punch-ups, Congress did find a way to keep the federal government open, at least until early next year. Let's introduce our panel. Megan Scully is Bloomberg News' Congress editor. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me. Arthur Delaney, senior reporter for the HuffPost. Good to have you back with us. Great to be here. And Steve Clemens, the founding editor-at-large at Semaphore and also host of The Bottom Line on Al Jazeera English. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Greetings. Maybe we should start with the one big thing Congress did accomplish this week when they were not knocking lumps at each other. We'll get to that. Uh, But this is the deal to keep the federal government open. Arthur, what's different about this deal? Nothing. And that's all it is. We won't shut the government down for like a month and a half. There's nothing else to it, Uh, except for the implications for the new speaker and whether the Republicans who like to throw out speakers want to throw him out because he passed this bill with Democrats. And what's the what were you hearing on the Hill about that this week? Well, that group was mad and they did retaliate a little bit on an obscure procedural motion that nobody cares about outside of Capitol Hill. And it I, I think the threat is there, uh, but they're not they didn't want to retaliate in a in a bigger way that anyone would understand. That could happen in January, February, depending on what Speaker Johnson does. Megan, to what extent was there basically just zero appetite for lawmakers to be stuck in D.C. because of the Thanksgiving holiday? So they were talking about how they had been in session for 10 straight weeks, and and the place had become, according to the new speaker, a pressure cooker, which I think we'll get into in just a little bit. But uh, the, the smell of jet fumes is a powerful motivator on Capitol Hill, and they wanted to get out of there. So they were willing to give the new speaker sort of this this honeymoon period and and get this short-term spending bill through, which, as Arthur said, really just buys time until after the holidays. And Steve, just to be clear, there was nothing different about this than what Speaker McCarthy would have done, correct? No, I think it's pretty much exactly as Arthur said. It's, it's, it's all of the same. They're not going um, bill by bill at this point. They're just doing a continuing resolution, which means they're delaying the future civil war. That news, of course, was overshadowed by the raucous behavior of some lawmakers this week who had money on Senator Bernie Sanders having to act as a referee for a boxing match. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. No, no, sit down. Sit down. You know, you're a United States senator. All right. Can I respond? Hold it. Hold it. Okay, Arthur, what happened here and then also later in the House? So that is... Senator Mark Wayne Mullen uh, from Oklahoma and uh, Teamsters President Sean O'Brien. And they had they had had words at a previous hearing 
Uh, and after that hearing earlier this year, Mullen had threatened to fight O'Brien. He said, let's have a charity MMA match. A physical fight. A physical be fight clear. because Mullen is jacked and he's a former MMA fighter. And, you know, he would he would he loves that. He would probably win the fight. And uh, O'Brien did not respond, wasn't into that. And so when this hearing was scheduled and he was the witness, you know, I had money on there being major beef. And the only reason I wasn't in the room when it happened is that there was another fight in the house at the same time that I was closer to. So I, I wound up uh, – I talked to Mullen later, uh, but it was just an incredible day of beef on Capitol Hill. What happened in the house? This is with former Speaker McCarthy. So they were – so the Republicans were leaving one of their meetings in the basement where the Speaker said, we're going to pass this clean bill with no goodies for the conservatives and – Johnson wasn't going to get in trouble for it like McCarthy did. I think McCarthy resented that a little bit. And one of the eight guys who had voted to oust him, Tim Burchett of Tennessee, was walking in the hallway and McCarthy was coming up behind him and shoved or hit him in the back. And this was in full view of reporters. We have recordings of Burchett then running up to McCarthy and saying, why would you hit me in the back? Have some guts. You're pathetic. And, and McCarthy saying, well... Thanks, Tim. Ha ha, whatever. I didn't hit you. But Tim told me, uh, Mr. Burchett told me about an hour later that it still hurt where he'd been hit right in the kidney. Steve, while this is great fodder for late night talk show hosts, what does this say about the state of U.S. politics right now, at least in Washington? Well, it, it, it is terrible for the country because you see the rise of violence. This, you know, a lot of people have said, maybe we're back in the 1850s when you had canings on the floor of the Senate where, you know, a senator was nearly killed uh, by someone who, who came in. We're, we're in a time where toxicity is high. Uh, we see political violence rising around the country, but we also see a level of disdain between members of Congress themselves, even within parties, as Arthur just said with Tim Burchett and Kevin McCarthy. Uh, or Matt Gates. I mean, they, Matt Gates uh, is actually referring this to the Ethics Committee, and Kevin McCarthy said uh, Gates needs all the ethics he can get. It's just vile right now. Mm. Uh, they've been working for ten weeks in a row. I mean, who who doesn't lose their mind after working for ten weeks? We mentioned at the top, HuffPost is reporting this year's Congress is likely to be the least productive since the Great Depression. Republicans often argue they're not interested in making the federal government bigger and have a constituency that would like to see fewer laws passed and more regulations torn up. So, Megan, does that make this session a win for them then? I think that uh, it has been a very rocky year uh, with lots of congressional infighting, particularly among Republicans. Uh, Tuesday was was definitely the most uh, violent and and certainly headline grabbing that we've seen. Uh, but I think it's 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 hard to portray this year in any way as a a win for Republicans. Remember, we we can go back to the January with the the really difficult first speaker fight that that stretched on for some 15 rounds that ultimately got McCarthy elected. And, and then you go through the, the debt ceiling deal where the U.S. was really on the verge of um, fiscal catastrophe in that um, just in May. And then we've just been locked in these 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 brawls over congressional spending, over federal spending. And um, so, no, I, I don't think this year, I don't think any anyone would say this year was was a victory for Republicans. 
Uh, that that story uh, was by my colleague Jonathan Nicholson, who did some uh, important analysis to, to reckon that there had been fewer laws passed by this time in a Congress uh, this year than since any Congress since uh, the 1930s. And it's not a win for fans of small government because if you want to get rid of laws, you still have to pass a law to do that. If you want to destroy regulations, you got to do that legislatively. So no, it's it's the dysfunction that's happening is actually the only thing that's happening. It's it's debate over whether Kevin McCarthy shoved or punched or elbowed Tim Burchett. Tim Burchett thought it was an elbow, but you know, debates on legislation just aren't happening. House Speaker Mike Johnson sparked another debate after he made these comments to CNBC on Tuesday. The separation of church and state is a, is a misnomer. People misunderstand it. Of course, it comes from a phrase that was in a letter that Jefferson wrote. It's not in the Constitution. And what he was explaining is they did not want the government to encroach upon the church, not that they didn't want principles of faith to have influence on our public life. It's exactly the opposite. Not an establishment of any national religion, but we need everybody's vibrant expression of faith because it's such an important part of who we are as a nation. That's drawn some attention to remarks Johnson made in 2007 about the Bible. At that time, he said, quote, The Bible is and should be an appropriate course of study in our public schools. It is the most widely read, widely published, most influential book in all of history. Censoring it from the classroom is as unwise as it is unnecessary. Megan, could Speaker Johnson be successful in this push for Bibles in public schools? No, I, I don't see him being successful here. This is um, certainly a bit of a distraction, and, and it, but it does continue this, this ongoing debate about religion and public discourse and in public space in, in the United States. You know, he, he say, you know, he has said that the separation of church and state is, is not part of the Constitution, which technically is, is accurate, uh, but it is a long-held tradition that has been held up in courts throughout the years um, and, and is considered, you know, a, a vital part of the First Amendment. The new speaker has made clear that his faith is is going to really undergird his speakership. He's talked about abortion and, and other matters. He, he's evangelical and um, and and speaks about it quite regularly. But he, as Speaker of the House, is not able to to change law. You know, in, in this regard, remember we have a, a Democratic president for now, and and as a Senate that is controlled by Democrats. So you said this might be a distraction. How so? Well, I mean, what I meant by distraction essentially is is that nothing tangible is going to come of this immediately. It certainly, though, is is an ongoing political debate, and this is more fuel for that. I, I think he was making a sort of anodyne, anodyne point, actually, about people in public life should just be virtuous. And it's just kind of funny when the leader of the party is Donald Trump, who like openly flouts norms, laws— Uh, and his own marriages. We're going to take a quick pause here and head to a break. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. 
Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the roundup and turn now to the House Ethics Committee. On Thursday, the committee released a 56-page report on the embattled New York Republican Representative George Santos. Steve, what evidence did this report find? So much. (laughs) They have credit card receipts. They've got testimony from a treasurer of his who has already pleaded guilty. But essentially, they found evidence that George Santos according to the report, used his candidacy fraudulently fraudulently to exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his personal uh, personal profit. And he went on trips to Atlantic City, had Botox treatments, um, basically wined and dined uh, his partner and and did this, you know, in full view of a lot of his of his own staff. And so they were able to bring these things. A lot of this was charged to his campaign debit card, in fact. Uh, It's a damning report. And so while we look at Democrats and Republicans not working together very well in the House, the House Ethics Committee passed this report out unanimously on George Santos. And just a few minutes ago, the ethics chairman has introduced legislation or introduced a resolution in the House calling for his expulsion. How likely is that to happen, Arthur? Well, they had a vote on whether to expel him a few weeks ago, and it failed. Everyone was saying, sure, he's awful and a liar, but he's only been charged with crimes. He hasn't been convicted. So that's not our threshold for uh, you know, basically overruling the voters in his district. But a bunch of members said, well, we'll, we'll see what this ethics report says, because they knew they were working on it. And it came out, and it's very similar to the indictment, but just more. And every page of it has a really damning declarative sentence like, George Santos cannot be trusted. And the dam is breaking. A lot of people who said they wouldn't vote, who didn't vote for him to be expelled last time have said they will this time. They need two-thirds of lawmakers, so it's a very high bar, but they could get there. And this would be the first expulsion since they threw out Jim Traffickant in 2002. Uh, a, A huge deal, especially since Republicans have such a slim majority. And Speaker Johnson is still like, I don't know, guys. We got to do what we got to do here. It would really limit the number of, I think he's at, what, three now? So it brings him down to, to two that he can afford if to he's, If he's, um, yeah, if he ha- faces expulsion, does that seat get appointed or what happens? No. In the Constitution, there has to be a special election for a House seat. Uh, and that seat could go to a Democrat. Right. And so, and so they have a four-vote margin if they want to pass something just Republicans, and, and that will get smaller. But it depends on how many people are there that day because the math is based on current attendance. But huge deal when you have that few. On Sunday, Republican Senator Tim Scott dropped this bombshell during a Fox News interview. When I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential uh, candidate. I am suspending my campaign. I, I think the voters... Uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet, have been really clear that they're telling me, uh, not now, Tim. Steve Scott says he's taking his cue from voters. How did his campaign fare compared to his opponents? Well, I, you know, his staff had no idea this was coming. I think that Tim Scott, going through these debates, saw that he didn't catch fire 
he was an optimistic guy. He was constantly laying out this. And people I know uh, close to the senator have said, optimism isn't selling right now. He was at about 4% uh, in the polls. He'd raised uh, millions of dollars, over $25 million of early ad spends, but money was getting tight. And I think he just saw no opening and track running fifth place right now. And I think he just made the decision on the fly because literally no one on his campaign team knew this was coming. Megan, of course, he's just the latest GOP candidate to drop out of a 2024 presidential race. Last month, we saw former Vice President Mike Pence ending his campaign. Can you just catch us up where we are with this narrowing field now? So the the field continues to narrow even as as former President Donald Trump continues to, to have a 40-point lead over pretty much any of his his opponents here. So the 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 candidates that have dropped out are, were getting in the one, two, three, very low single-digit percentiles. So, um, but we are seeing uh, another another South Carolina Republican, Nikki Haley, sort of ascend after, you know, debate performances that, that you know, have gotten, you know, caught headlines. And I think Tim Scott's dropping out at this point isn't as much about um, where his voters are going to go, because frankly, there aren't very many of them, but it's about where his campaign cash is going to go. He's always been a very successful fundraiser. And as Steve mentioned, he has millions um, in the bank. So where are these high profile donors going to going to put their money. And that money seems to be, at least initially we're seeing, seems to be going to Nikki Haley, which could be a big benefit for her. Yeah, that's the early reporting is that those those donors are saying they're going to Haley. Ron DeSantis is still in it, though, so it's looking more like a Haley versus DeSantis at this point, And you may not have to pay as much attention to Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy. The front runner in the Republican presidential race has no plans of dropping out. He's putting his energy into riling his base instead. During a rally in New Hampshire this week, Donald Trump vowed to, quote, root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, end quote. On Tuesday, Biden condemned Trump's comment, comparing it to the rhetoric of Nazi Germany. Steve, Trump making extreme remarks at a rally isn't new, but why is this particular comment hitting a nerve right now? It's not new, but it's a severe form of dog whistle that continues to play to the, to, the, to the most virulent form of white nationalism um, and these groups in America. And I've, he has not used these kinds of terms to this degree before. So it's a real ratcheting up. And even his spokesperson came out and said, those on the left you know, will be you know, completely uh, 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 eliminated. And, and so the language is so harsh that it, it comes back and reminds me of Tina Brown's book uh, once about Donald Trump long ago, where, you know, in his plate, you know, in her, his apartment, she, he, she saw a, uh, a collection of Adolf Hitler speeches that, that Trump was reading. No one's ever thought about this or talked about Tina Brown's book or is this in Donald Trump's head, but you're seeing more and more reflection of a facility this guy has of trying to resurrect a language that we haven't really heard in the world since the 1930s, or at least not in the transatlantic world. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, it is a very different degree of severity of Donald Trump and making a call, I think, to you know, folks that are on the very pugnacious end of American nationalism and associate themselves as white nationalists. 
Yeah, he's talked about the threat from within the country and the Marxists and the fascists, but it was it was his use of the word vermin that historians noted is is uh, what historical dictators have said to dehumanize their opponents. And the Biden administration picked a fight about this, and they are the ones who I think. Uh, but, you know, except, except, in addition to the reporters who pointed, who who called up the historians and, and made this observation, uh, the Biden administration has picked a major fight over this remark, uh, highlighting it to reporters and making a statement about it. And it's probably a, a good thing worth focusing on because I mean, he's been saying he he wants same day executions for drug dealers and other authoritarian policies uh, like that all along. But it, it it makes it clearer for a moment what's going on in this election. You know, I thought it was interesting when when the president called it Trump derangement syndrome. That was certainly a soundbite and something that that is going to to carry through. Um, but you know, when Trump has made comments like this in the past, it hasn't hurt him politically. And you know, it'll be interesting to see if this was one step too far. But every Previous time, we've thought it, he's taken it one step too far. It's turned out not to be the case. Let's move on to another topic. According to a new poll from NPR, PBS, and Marist, 44% of Americans think Israel's military response is spot on. The other half of the country is almost perfectly split between those who think Israel has gone too far and those who think Israel hasn't done enough. Steve, how has American public opinion on the war changed since this started? Well, the support for Israel's action after the horrible October 7th Hamas attack uh, against innocent Israelis, you know, has, has, has begun to erode, um, erode significantly. Um, and, and I think it's eroding uh, in the Democratic Party and in a way that's very complicated for President Biden. And I think at the beginning of this, there was just no doubt that across both Israeli politics from the far left to the far right, the outrage and support for the government's actions were very strong. But in the U.S., there was also strong support. But it, there was an understanding it felt like this was Israel's 9-11 moment. But now the indiscriminate killing, the what many nations are calling war crimes, um, the resistance, Israel, you know, uh, uh, the White House did a, a call with us and I was on the call you know, with um, uh, them, and they said that the Israel would have re- resisted any humanitarian aid going into Gaza, and it was only because of President Biden's intervention that any humanitarian aid at all was getting in. More and more of getting this is out that that is looking at the indiscriminate killing of of many innocents in Gaza, um, thousands and thousands of children, and I think this is also raising an issue that if you look at the polls that um, NPR just did you see that most white Americans are still supportive of Israel's actions, but non-white Americans are extremely uncomfortable with what they're seeing. And that is supporting, that is driving the point where now Democrats, a majority of Democrats do not support um, the actions that Israel is taking, not comfortable with it. Let's turn now to primary voting. With less than two months to go, New Hampshire is standing its ground against the Democratic Party and President Biden. New Hampshire is forging ahead with a January 23rd primary date, ending a months-long debate with the Democratic Party over whether the state should keep its first-in-the-nation status in primary elections. Are there how big of a deal is this move from New Hampshire's political leadership? Well, there we'll see. It's a big deal that the DNC and Joe Biden said don't do it, and they're doing it anyway. They have a law 
that says they have to be first. They have to be the first primary. There's a, a thing called a caucus, a horrible thing that Iowa does that is the first like elect- election-like thing that happens next year. Uh, but New Hampshire is insisting that they remain first. Democrats wanted South Carolina to go first. South Carolina better represents the demographics of the, demogra- of the Democratic Party. And New Hampshire is like, well, so what? And they arbitrarily insist. Uh, I believe one impact of this is that in the Democratic primary, which will you know, have no real effect on anything that happens, Joe Biden's name won't be on the ballot. So it's arbitrary and absurd. Uh, but that's you know, New Hampshire, they want to go first and they're going to go first. It's interesting that uh, Joe Biden finished fifth, I believe, in New Hampshire in 2020. So this was certainly not where he he wanted to start his campaign. And as Artie mentioned, yes, uh, I, I believe Marion Williamson and Dean Phillips, uh, not exactly two nationally known names, but they'll be on the ballot, but the president will not. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to the Supreme Court, which adopted a code of ethics this week. Critics say this code has no teeth, no enforcement mechanism. And on Wednesday, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse told one day's Jen White about sometimes an ethics code with congressional oversight might have been useful. When Justice Thomas didn't recuse from the cases involving uh, his wife's interaction with the White House around the uh, insurrection on January 6th, that was probably a violation of law. And we don't know because nobody asked him the question, what did you know about your wife's activities when you participated in these decisions? Another very obvious one is um, it appears from our finance committee investigation that the principal on a $270,000 loan to buy a big recreational vehicle was never paid back by Justice Thomas, which under tax law is probably uh, income, likely a gift, and that would also trigger judicial reporting obligations, which uh, we have not seen met. That's Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on 1A earlier this week. Megan, so what's included in this new code of ethics? I think actually the question is what is not included. Um, even the Supreme Court has said uh, this. Most of the most of the wording in here is is you know we've seen before. We 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 have in our sort of um, informal rules. They did try to adapt language, codes of ethics from lower courts. The Supreme Court is the only federal court that does not adhere to a code of ethic, ethics. And um, But really what, what it lacks is, is teeth. It doesn't really have any enforcement mechanisms. It doesn't set gift limits. It doesn't require disclosures of financial um, or, or, or it doesn't disclose – it does not require justices to, to – um, not invest in areas where they they could have a double standard, so it, or conflict of interest. So, and there's no exact um, definition of what crosses the line here. So, it, it a lot of things it doesn't include. In other words, <laughs> yes. let me ask. So, Senator Whitehouse proposed um, legislation that would quote create a mechanism to investigate alleged violations of the code of conduct and other laws, improve, improve disclosure and transparency when a justice has a connection to a party or an amicus before the court, require justices to explain their recusal decisions to the public. Steve, any potential to get both parties on board with this plan? I think it's going to be really tough. I mean, right now, the court has become very politicized. It's largely, you know, it's become a conservative court, largely because of conservative politics. And, you know, I think that what Sheldon Whitehouse and others are arguing 
is that even the foil of being able to create some element of public transparency is a step forward. But in terms of getting a real deal on this, I don't see any way possible. We're going to head to a quick break, but we'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the roundup. Most testimony in former President Trump's trials has been behind closed doors. Until this week, leaked videos of testimony from Georgia's election subversion case against the former president and 18 of his associates were published this week. Here's former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis recounting a conversation with Dan Scavino, Trump's deputy chief of staff at the time. I said something to him like, I'm sorry that... Uh, we haven't been able to do more, and I uh, emphasized him. I thought that the, um, the the claims and the ability to challenge uh, the election results was essentially over because of the dismissal of the Texas versus Pennsylvania case from the United States Supreme Court. And he said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care, and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump, and everyone understood the boss, um, that's what we all called him. Um, he said the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care. That was former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis. She pleaded guilty in the Georgia case last month. Steve, what else did we learn from these videos? Well, we also learned that Sidney Powell um, validated that Donald Trump, Sidney Powell, of course, an attorney uh, for Trump who kept arguing in the press about conspiracies that affected ele- you know, election and voting machines in the United States, a Venezuelan conspiracy, and was out there. And she has since said that that was fabricated. But she came out and said that all the attorneys, everyone was telling Donald Trump he had lost the election. But she herself didn't believe he had, and he kept meeting her because she was the only one, as she said, who hadn't told him he had lost the election. So it validates, at least through her testimony or her uh, comments, that Donald Trump was well-informed by his own team, pervasively, that he had lost the election. 
Arthur, what do we know about who was behind this leak, why they might have done this? I think this is a pretty confusing story. The leak was admit a, a, law, a lawyer for Misty Hampton, who is one of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia case, admitted in court that he was the one who leaked it. Why did he do that? It's not totally clear to me. This is apparently more than an hour of video. And so I don't know if he intended for the clips that reporters highlighted to be the things he wanted out there um, and and why he would do that, uh, you know, perhaps – he thought it was favorable for his client to have uh, Trump's lawyers saying, yeah, Trump wanted to throw out the election result. It was all him. Or maybe there's something else in there or some other reason uh, that, uh, you know, may- maybe yeah. maybe witness intimidation. I-, I don't know. That's what prosecutors in the case have been saying that prosecutors are saying witness intimidation. Yes, they're you know, they're saying they, they're saying they weren't behind the leaks of the interviews and, and that this could lead to, you know, witness intimidation threats um, and harassment for for those in the video. Yeah, But it's not it's like not forbidden material. It wasn't illegal to leak it. It's just that they're saying this has to come out in the way that the court thinks it should or that the, the prosecutors and, and the defense agree to deal with it. Arthur, which is exactly what Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee, who's overseeing the case, said. He's not happy about the leak. In a Wednesday hearing, he said, quote, until we decide what's going to be relevant and admissible, this case should be tried not in the court of public opinion as much as possible, but before a jury. And Steve, the judge said he's imposing a protective order over the case material. So what does that mean for future testimony or possible leaks? I think that would just formalize the apparent expectation they had that you wouldn't just throw out depositions or proffer statements in this case uh, and other discovery materials before it's actually being used in court. Steve? Well, I think it's now drawn a line about what can be done and what can't. But Jonathan Miller, the attorney, said he did this for the transparency for the public, whether it helped his um, his you know his client or not is beside the point. According to him, he believed that the keeping cloaked what these two individuals, uh, Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis, had said, and that not coming out in the various deals they had done, so that they would proffer commentary about the case and be dealt with favorably, he said that was undermining transparency. It's an interesting position he had, but now the protective order on further material that comes out through discovery won't be able to legally be leaked. So what are the next steps in this case then? Steve? Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think think right now they're going to continue to build the case of what they believe uh, Donald Trump and others, you know, there are 18 defendants in this case, did to uh, reverse the try to reverse the election count in Georgia. Um, I think the process is still in, ongoing. My other colleagues may know the timeline better. And, than well, I this do. case this case is going to go on potentially into 2025, is what the prosecutor said this week. So I, uh, there's, it's obviously unprecedented situation, and we don't know what's going to happen. I wanted to ask you all about another case involving former President Trump, and this is about him remaining on the 2024 ballot in Michigan after Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson sought to ban him based on the 14th Amendment's prohibition of candidates who have, quote, engaged in insurrection. Megan, what do we know about the judge's reasoning in this case? 
Basically, what the judge said here is is that it wasn't just up to him to to decide that that this is a, a broader issue and um, you know should be determined that that he could not um, as, as one judge and instead of a, a jury um, determine whether Trump had engaged in an insurrection, which was the the basis of the arguments here. We're also seeing voters in Colorado and Minnesota making a Fourteenth Amendment argument against Trump appearing on the ballot. Given that multiple states have weighed in on this issue already, Steve, are we expecting this is going to continue to surface throughout the 2024 election? I I think it will continue to surface as sort of low-level noise. I mean, it's a very interesting argument um, to make about about the 14th Amendment and Trump's role in uh, a potential insurrection. But there's no conviction of that yet. So when these cases began to appear, I sort of thought they were wobbly. Because any judge, you know, as we saw in Minnesota, can say, well, you know, any party can bring forward anyone they want. This this law hasn't been tested in so long that I don't think there's a practical application of it. And it would take a conviction in a court, I think, at some point to be able to validate that point. But I think on the the fact is that we saw we're seeing a lot of evidence about Donald Trump's roles in January 6th, uh, his efforts to overturn an election. And I think that for many people out there, that's enough, and they will continue to bring these cases. I don't think they'll go through, but it'll be surface noise. It's, it's so hard to imagine the court system preemptively saying, no, this guy can't be on the ballot. Point of clarification, are we talking about the primary, the general election, both? Both. Primary and then general. Starting with – okay. Yeah. And from all of you all, like just sort of the – is this a good democratic move? Is this like – I'm just kind of thinking what what the thinking is here. Is this politically savvy? Like what is the thinking behind these efforts? I, I think that, you know, as Steve said, it, it, it's sort of low-level noise. I don't think it is necessarily – motivating voters um, either on the right or on the left. Um, this is playing out in court. Um, it's not something that, you know, that is, is hurting the president in any way I, I, on the ballot. Um, there are plenty of other issues. President well, Steve, Biden yeah. Has. And then I wonder, Steve, would this in just would this maybe help the president with other um, with his argument that they, he's being a political target? Like, does this help him with some supporters? Well, I mean, it's going to help with his base, but it's not going to help with Democrats and independents. I mean, these elections are one with the way that independents swing one way or another. And what these challenges do is they remind Americans that the guy out there in the leading the GOP uh, ticket, possibly, is calling his rivals and enemies vermin and that he had a big role in January 6th, and he tried to overturn uh, the last election. And so reminding people about the fragility of democracy is something that seemed to have mattered in the last midterm election. So that's, that, that low-level noise plays an organizing function and a rallying function and a reminder so that this doesn't fade away in our attention deficit disorder politics today. And so I think that's why Democrats will continue to do it and Republicans will still say they're being you know, chased in a witch hunt. Moving now to the economy, prices are still rising, but the latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows inflation rates are now at their lowest in more than two years. Megan, as we approach the Thanksgiving holiday, what are we expecting about lower prices at grocery stores, certainly lower gas stations? 
Yes. So, I mean, what we're seeing is core inflation is still at, at 4%, which is, is still... A, a Remind ha- us what core inflation is. So that does not include volatile um, costs such as, as gas prices, which we see... Which shift quite a bit. Which shift quite a bit and are based on... A, on other economic factors, including geopolitics. But food is included in corn. Food is included, yes. Um, so, you know, but it's still, it's up 4%. It was up 4% last month over the prior year, which is down from the 6.6% inflation year on year that we saw uh, in September of 2022. But it's still higher than the 2% where we want to go. So, I mean, I know when I go to the grocery store, I have, I have three boys. So, you know, I have a pretty hefty hefty grocery bill. And, and it's it's gone up and, and it continues to feel high. I think consumers are going to continue to feel the pinch. Um, wages have gone up, uh, which has, has really helped the economy and lessened the chances of a recession. Um, so that, that does help sort of Americans make ends meet and, and buy the turkey. Um, but it, it's still going to be higher than they felt two years ago. Nobody thought you could get inflation to slow down as much as it has without unemployment rising. I mean, there were there were people who said this is certainly possible for us to achieve through monetary policy. But I think the overwhelming consensus was that you'd cause a recession by raising interest rates. And it just didn't happen. And yet, Nobody cares because inflation coming down doesn't mean prices go down. It just means they stop going up as much. So that that's why economic sentiment is still so sour, even though we still have amazingly low unemployment. People think there's high inflation even when there's no inflation. It's just a historical fact that it's super annoying to have to pay more for stuff and see the prices change every week at the supermarket. And it, it explains a lot about what's going on in politics and why Joe Biden is so vulnerable in the next election. Well, and to your point, people are spending less. Analysis by CNBC says retail spending in October dipped by 0.08 percent. That's excluding gas and automobile spending. Megan, how significant is that spending decline, especially as we're thinking about going into the holiday season? So, you know, I, I think that we'll expect to see it tick up again the closer we get to the holidays. S- Slowing um, the the rate of, um, of of buying is not necessarily a bad thing, particularly from from the point of view of of the Federal Reserve, which has been trying to kind of rein in spending to get inflation levels down, and and involves the interest rates and and all of that. But it's um, you know we'll, we'll see it tick up whether whether it is at the same levels that we saw last year uh, remain to be seen. Um, I, I do think it's interesting. I want to just pivot real quick to the point on on Biden and the economy. You know, we've seen in, in our polling at Bloomberg, we've seen this in New York Times polling, that vo- voters are really dissatisfied with Biden on the economy, and, and they prefer Trump there. So this is going to be a real weak spot for the president, even if we avert a recession. Yeah, our recessions are, are worse. Uh, it ruins people's lives when they lose their jobs, but not everybody. Like it's only it's only a small percentage of the workforce that's that's uh, you know gets laid off. But everybody goes to the store, so it's it's funny how this less awful thing is so much worse in politics. I'm going to end on one final story here. Members of the United Auto Workers Union narrowly voted to approve a record contract from General Motors yesterday. The deal, which includes 25% raises, cost of living, inflation adjustments, which we've just been talking about, increased retirement contributions, got a yes from about 54% of GM union workers. Union members also voted for deals at Ford and Stellantis. Just wanted to end on that note and ask you guys about that. 
Uh, well, it was a close vote, and I think a lot of the workers who'd been at those plants longer were against it because it was it, it, most of the benefits went to newer hires who had a disadvantageous arrangement prior to this. Uh, but the the union prevalence that's this is another big deal for Joe Biden because he sided with them very forcefully. Steve, well, I'd say just one thing on the economic front. Walmart put out a report today uh, to respond to Arthur's point. Um, that we may see deflation uh, in many product areas uh, during Christmas shopping. That would be very interesting to see. The second most interesting thing I've heard this week is that Xi Jinping whispered that maybe the pandas will be back. Ah, the pandas, maybe, not the same pandas, but maybe we will get other pandas coming back to D.C. That's a good point to end on. My thanks this week to Steve Clemens, founding editor-at-large at Semaphore, host of The Bottom Line on Al Jazeera English, Megan Scully, Congress editor for Bloomberg News, and Arthur Delaney, reporter for HuffPost. Coming up with the global edition of the News Roundup. I'm committed to keeping the lines of communications open between you and me personally, but our governments across the board. A thaw in relations after a year of silence. But what really came out of the meeting between U.S. President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping this week? And... Are you resigning, Home Secretary? You have to demonstrate, Home Secretary. You have to get sacked. A major reshuffle in the British government and a surprise reappearance by a familiar face. Plus, all the latest from Israel's war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. Let's meet our panel. David Rennie is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. Hi, David. Hello. Joyce Cottam is senior news editor and Al Monitor. She writes the China Middle East Briefing newsletter. Good to see you, Joyce. Hi, Naila. Also in studio with us, Jack Datch, Pentagon and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Welcome, Jack. Hey, Naila. Israeli attacks in Gaza intensified this week with a focus on hospitals, where the Israeli military claims that Hamas is running operations from. Since the war began in Gaza nearly six weeks ago, 11,400 Palestinians have been killed. Palestinian health authorities say that more than two-thirds of these victims are women and children. More than 1,200 in Israel were killed in the surprise Hamas attacks on October 7th, and approximately 240 men, women, and children were taken hostage by Hamas. Joyce, let's start with the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza. What's been happening there this week? Yes, uh, it is dreadful. It's This is Al-Shifa Hospital is the largest medical uh, center in all of the Gaza uh, Strip. And when uh, we say large, how big of a facility is this? It, now the, the director of the hospital says it's housing 7,000 people. 
So pretty, uh, uh, pretty big. It's uh, uh, in northern Gaza, and uh, beginning this week, the uh, Israeli army raided and uh, is uh, advancing and taking control of the uh, compound. But the situation inside the the hospital is quickly deteriorating. Uh, the staff is pleading for uh, for fuel, for electricity, uh, to to run their incubators. Uh, their uh, their director, uh, Mohammed Abu Samia, uh, spoke to Al Jazeera uh, this morning, and he was saying that uh, the patients uh, they've lost at least twenty two uh, people uh, overnight because of uh, of these uh, uh, of these out- outages. The UN Human Rights uh, Chief is pleading Israel to grant them access uh, to uh, Ashifa Hospital. The Israelis insist that there are, um, that Hamas is using Ashifa Hospital for, uh, as a command uh, center, and that they're looking for uh, for uh, for evidence. Uh, but the situation, Naila, in the hospital is really dire. It's, it's in violation of uh, international law, uh, uh, what's happening, and uh, while, uh, you know, Hamas could be in violation in using the medical center. It's also a violation from Israel to be uh, targeting uh, the hospital. We've heard uh, the latest from uh, the Israeli government that they would allow fuel daily to Gaza starting uh, today. That hasn't happened. Uh, personally, as a, as editor, as journalist, we have lost touch with uh, all our reporters in Gaza, uh, mm. starting uh, yesterday morning local. You haven't uh, been able time. to locate and speak to your journalists. No, we haven't. Messages are not delivered. Uh, emails uh, not getting through. Phones not getting through. And that's because of an internet blackout. Uh, fuel and internet blackout. This is what Israel is saying. Late on Thursday, the Israeli military said it uncovered a Hamas tunnel shaft and a vehicle with weapons at the El Shifa hospital complex. They also said the body of one hostage had been recovered. We're going to play for you now a clip from an Israeli video handout that they gave to the Associated Press. And it's important to note here, this has not been independently verified by any journalists. And when our troops open this uh, closet here, which is in the main part of the clinic, this is what they found. These weapons have absolutely no business being inside a hospital. The only reason they're here is because Hamas put them here, because they use this place, like many other hospitals and ambulances and sensitive facilities inside the Gaza Strip, for their illicit military purposes. That was Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, an IDF spokesman, in an Israeli military video handout to the AP, which has not been independently verified. On Tuesday, John Kirby, National Security Council spokesperson, said intelligence from U.S.-generated sources supports Israel's claim that Hamas has tunnels under the Al-Shifa and other hospitals. Jack, what evidence are American officials presenting to journalists to back this up? Well, not much. Uh, They haven't really put their cards on the table. Kirby made this claim about Al-Shifa without actually providing any specific receipts, any satellite imagery, uh, any signals intelligence that had been classified. But they insist they have stuff on the high side that goes further than what the Israelis have collected or, or shown publicly. Now, of course, as you mentioned, the Israelis did provide a bit more these these pictures of the, the tunnels of the weapons that haven't been independently verified. 
And it wouldn't be surprising, I guess, when you look at the history to see Hamas trying to operate in this way, using hospitals, using civilian uh, areas as command posts. ISIS certainly did this uh, during the wars in the Middle East just a couple of years ago. Uh, but the the pressure is going up, as Joyce was saying. You've seen UN member states calling for a ceasefire. You now see the U.S. calling publicly for humanitarian pauses. Obviously, a lot of consternation further down in the administration about taking a stronger stand against Israel or pushing back on Israel. So it seems when you like say further down, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, what no, you of mean course, just for weeks, we've seen letters bubbling up within USAID, within the State Department, uh, independent officials going through the State Department's dissent channel, which is, of course, the channel that's built for diplomats to, to come out internally without the threat of retribution uh, and basically come out against administration policy. So we've seen those channels be incredibly active, probably more active than we've seen them use in, in years. Um, so this is a lot of internal pressure that that Biden, that Blinken, uh, that the entire U.S. administration is facing over this. So we're going to have to see probably some, some more compelling evidence from the Israelis or the Americans uh, if they want to keep up international support for, for what's going on. Right. Here. And, and getting back specifically to this hospital issue, we should add that Hamas officials vehemently deny these allegations. Here's spokesperson Osama Hamdan in Beirut. This ridiculous play is used by the occupation forces to cover up their claims. It became clear to everyone the lies of the occupation and the U.S. administration, which promoted those claims without giving evidence. RFU rifles and a military uniform and a shoe, which were brought in by the occupation forces to the MRI room, does all of that make it a command center for Al-Qassam brigades? That was Hamas spokesman Osama Hamdan speaking to reporters in Beirut yesterday. David, this issue of hospitals being used as a cover for terror operations has been disputed for years. And now we're sort of in the stalemate between Israel and Hamas. What do you see happening next year? Well, I think there's a there's a sort of question of facts. And I, you can see both sides currently completely disagreeing. And it's clearly going to be enormously important uh, for the Israeli argument they've been saying since the very beginning of this war, that they were going to find uh, command centers and tunnels under places like exactly this hospital. And to date, it has to be said that even some countries that are pretty defensive of the Israel, uh, Israel's right to defend itself, they are underwhelmed by what the Israelis have been showing so far. And, and the Israelis have only found kind of the potential entrance to a tunnel as opposed to these videos that they had earlier put out about very extensive uh, complexes. So that's the factual part. There's the legal part that Joyce talked about, where the international law is clear that you're not allowed to attack a hospital, certainly just because uh, enemy fighters might be in there being treated. Uh, if it is a military command center and it is being kind of perverted and turned into a military base, then there is an exemption in international law that allows it to be targeted after you've given due warning and told everyone to evacuate. But I think fundamentally this is becoming a political problem. And I think one of the real problems is that Hamas and Israel are not meant to be on a moral kind of equivalent plane, throwing accusations at each other with everyone not sure who to believe. Israel goes into this as a highly functioning, wealthy democracy with lots of allies in the democratic world. Hamas is a vicious, authoritarian, one-party, militant state, uh, if not terrorist organization, which, among other things, has been accused by groups like Amnesty International over the years of using this hospital to torture its political prisoners. And so Hamas is hardly innocent here. But Israel, I think it clearly has to do much better 
than just being kind of on a level of kind of throwing around, uh, you know, equal amounts of propaganda. They have to be doing better. And you can see the, the deep disquiet of their strongest allies, including America, about, you know, this this failure to win over world opinion in this fight over the hospital. David, to the point of just um, verifying the facts here, we talked about the fact that journalists have not been allowed to independently verify this. Are international observers being allowed in to see these facilities and evidence? Um, No, and uh, there's another fight starting in another hospital uh, in the north of Gaza, uh, which again is completely sealed off because of fighting at the moment. And I think that one of the battles of international opinion that is proving very difficult for Israel to win at the moment is that even when they do take journalists on some of their operations, the conditions are still very controlled because Israel would say that, uh, you know, these are very dangerous combat operations and they have to be very careful. But, you know, I, I think that we're in this kind of very strange situation where Israel on the ground in Gaza is fighting an extraordinarily brutal fight against a very brutal enemy, Hamas. But Israel has two missions. It has to fight on the ground in Gaza, but it also has to present itself as a responsible democracy in the court of international diplomatic and political opinion. And those two missions are clearly in conflict. And certainly, as you say, with the level of transparency that combat is allowing Israel or Israel is willing to offer on the ground in Gaza. Uh, As we're talking about Israel-Hamas, the war, we just got this question from Doug. What evidence is there that the hostages in Gaza are alive? Well, we don't know much about uh, the hostages and their status. We know that the Israeli army said yesterday that they found uh, the body of one hostage at Al-Shifa Hospital. Uh, that was the second body that the they said they had found, body, correct? Yes, of a hostage? correct, Naila. Yeah. Uh, and then they, uh, we saw two that have uh, been released uh, so far. Uh, But there is negotiations ongoing with Qatar and Egypt over uh, 200 other hostages. So that leaves 236, if we're sticking at the 240 number, really. Or maybe, sorry, my math might be a little wrong there. But around 230. But around 230 uh, hostages that uh, are uh, being negotiated between Qatar, Egypt, and uh, Israel with, with Hamas. There are hopes for a deal that would see 50 released and uh, in, in return Israel would would go with a temporary uh, ceasefire. We've been hearing about this deal all week but it still hasn't uh, materialized so we're, we're uh, I think President Biden spoke about it as well so there are hopes that we could see something uh, a breakthrough on that. And as you to your point the calls for a ceasefire have grown louder not just in protests around the world but from world leaders. French President Emmanuel Macron spoke to the BBC saying there there's no justification for the bombing. I think this is the only solution we have. This is fire. Because it's impossible to explain. We want to fight against terrorism by killing innocent people. French President Emmanuel Macron speaking to the BBC earlier this week. Of course, Joyce, he was one of the first world leaders to visit Israel. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, after the October 7th attacks, he's been very vocal in his support of Israel's right to defend itself. Now, Macron is saying a humanitarian pause isn't enough. So what has changed over the past month? 
Well, uh, Na'il what has changed is more than 11,000 Palestinians have uh, have been killed. Uh, what has changed is displacement of 1.5 million uh, Palestinians uh, from uh, from their uh, from their homes and uh, no end in sight for uh, for the Israeli campaign. So, for a country like France that has a history of being uh, close to Arab countries, uh, me remember France was instrumental in the 2006 war uh, between uh, Hezbollah and Israel in uh, bringing forth a uh, ceasefire uh, at that time. They've been at the United Nations. They've been more uh, uh, attuned to uh, calls for uh, ceasefire as well. They voted in favor of a humanitarian uh, uh, pause uh, this week. Uh, at the same time, I think Macron is trying to balance. Uh, so he adjusted his tone after those remarks and said France still supports Israel's, uh, uh, what, it, what he said, Israel's right to uh, defend itself. He dispatched his uh, Secretary of Defense, his Minister of Defense, La Courneau, uh, to, uh, to the region, who is visiting Gulf countries and will be in, um, uh, in Israel uh, in, in the next uh, 48 hours. Uh, so this is, uh, this is French trying uh, to balance with its initial position the right of Israel to defend itself against the October 7 attack, but at the same time being more in tune to its traditional alliances and position on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which is for a negotiated two-state solution. We did uh, have Prime, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu speaking to NPR's Steve Inskeep earlier today. He compared Israel's attacks on Hamas to allied attacks on Nazi Germany when cities and civilians were bombarded. Well, I'm not sure of keeping troops inside. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's not particularly necessary. Gaza is very small. So the overriding military responsibility has to be with Israel for the foreseeable future. Because once you eliminate Hamas, and we have to eliminate Hamas, we have to beat these barbarians, otherwise this evil will spread, and it is uh, a great danger to everyone. But once we defeat Hamas, we have to make sure that there's no new Hamas, no resurgence of terrorism. And right now, the only force that is able to, uh, to secure that is Israel. So for the foreseeable future, Israeli overall military responsibility. But there also has to be a civilian government there. That's in response to a question where Steve Inskeep had noted the U.S. has kept troops in Germany for generations. He asked if Israel would do the same in Gaza. Jack, obviously, we're not at that point yet. No, but there is movement in the U.S. There's talk in the Biden administration of establishing an international peacekeeping force. It's not clear where they would get those troops from, perhaps European troops. And then, of course, there's a, there's a massive question of how this would end uh, and, and what type of force that would become comprised of and how uh, the Palestinians would react to, to that type of force. Would they see that as an occupying force, especially after the bloodletting that we've seen that, that Joyce talked about? So. It's very nascent planning at this point. Obviously, the focus in the administration has been on trying to get these humanitarian pauses, uh, the backflowing pressure about a ceasefire. And also the ground is shifting within Israel. It's important to note, too. You've seen the opposition leader, Yair Lapid, call yesterday for Netanyahu to go. Uh, and even some of the families of the hostages are out in the streets in Tel Aviv protesting, saying they want a ceasefire, they want to see the, the hostages released uh, before this ground invasion, but this ground invasion is still going. 
Let's turn now to China. Wednesday was a big day for U.S. relations with China as President Biden met with President Xi Jinping near San Francisco. It was a highly anticipated meeting, with some saying the relationship's at a 40-year low, especially with what Biden said two years ago. By the time I left office as vice president, I had spent more time with Xi Jinping than any world leader had. So I spent hours upon hours with him alone with an interpreter, my interpreter and his, going into great detail. It's very, very straightforward. Doesn't have a Democratic with a small D bone in his body, but he's a smart, smart guy. He's one of the guys like Putin who thinks that autocracy is the wave of the future. Democracy can't function in an ever, an ever complex world. That was President Biden speaking about Chinese President Xi in 2021. David, what is Biden saying about Xi now, especially after this meeting? Well, there was a question at the press conference at the end of the summit where he was asked if he still believed that the word dictator was the right one to use. And and he sort of hummed and hawed and said that, you know, in a sense, yes, because, you know, he leads a country that isn't free. Um, I actually think that that clip you just played is actually a pretty good description of Xi Jinping. And it's also the case that uh, Joe Biden did spend a tremendous amount of time with Xi Jinping when they were both vice president. That was a very deliberate plan by the Obama administration to use the fact that they knew Xi Jinping was going to be the top guy and to get to spend a lot of time with him. And I've spoken to senior American officials who were in those small meetings in China with, with Joe Biden and Xi Jinping before they became the top leaders in each case. And they did talk about this you know, these two men are politicians to their cause, but very different politicians. They did actually talk about, you know, what keeps you up at night? What, you know, and in Biden's case, you know, he asked what keeps up at night, and Xi Jinping said, you know, the Arab Spring, the idea of revolutions. And I think that analysis that Xi Jinping is fundamentally not, uh, believes that democracy is in decline and is, is the past and the future belongs to authoritarian, efficient, and needs to be brutal states. I think that is exactly how Xi Jinping sees the world. Or in that, knowledge, I think, shapes how much they could get done at this meeting. It really was about trying to sort of set a floor under the relationship and, you know, try and send a signal down into these two systems, particularly on the Chinese side, where Xi Jinping has such absolute control of his entire system that these two countries have to get on, they have to avoid drifting into conflict, and that Xi Jinping sees an interest in stabilizing and de-risking relations with America, and that that was the aim of the American side, was to get Xi Jinping in that room to then send that signal back down to his own extremely centralized system here in China. What, Joyce, what tangible results did we get out of this meeting this week? Uh, Well, uh, to David's point, this was an important uh, meeting. Uh, I think to sum it up in one word, what was most important about this meeting is stability, stability, stability. Stability in uh, U.S.-China ties, uh, you know, 10 months after the balloon uh, incident, the spy balloon uh, incident, uh, more than a year after Nancy Pelosi's visit to uh, to Taiwan, there was a uh, very deep rupture in the uh, relationship. Uh the Xi-Biden meeting did not usher a new era. Like We can't talk now about a honeymoon in the relationship between Washington and Beijing. Uh, I do think that uh, President Biden calling Xi a dictator 
will not go well and with, with the Chinese uh, government. Uh, they absolutely very sensitive uh, to that, and uh, they don't appreciate that rhetoric. We saw videos of— To be fair, that was two years ago, and he did not answer that question this week. Um, he he alluded that he still agrees with that uh, with that definition. We saw videos of uh, facial remarks that Secretary Blinken uh, did. So okay. it's it's problematic. Let's David, yeah, you want to weigh in here as well? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, the Chinese will pick a fight if they want to. I mean, if China saw an interest in trying to pick a massive fight at this moment and to make relations worse, then they would go berserk about the word dictator. But right now, with a slowing economy and a real slump in investment and a desire to see more American technology allowed to enter China. What we actually saw was the propaganda taps being kind of cranked in a different direction and suddenly actually Xi Jinping saying all kinds of fairly emollient things, much more emollient things about America than we've heard the propaganda machine pump out for the last 18 months. So I, I'm always very wary of the idea that America is uh, that, sorry that China is in any way sincerely offended by anything. China is this kind of steel, kind of cold calculating machine when it comes to diplomacy. And if they choose to get offended, they will. And if it doesn't suit them to get offended, they won't. And they've had you know only a very mild kind of you know grumble from some foreign ministry spokesman when directly asked about this word dictator. President Xi also met with U.S. business leaders. This is what he told American executives on Wednesday. China is willing to be a partner and friends with the United States. Our fundamental principles in handling Sino-U.S. relations are mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, and win-win cooperation. David, how significant was that meeting and that it was face-to-face? I mean, actually, what was interesting was that some of the reporting people, uh, reporters spoke to some of the American business leaders off the record afterwards, and they were a bit disappointed because it was all fairly kind of woolly, standard issue, Chinese Communist Party win-win cooperation stuff. And there wasn't a really direct pitch by Xi Jinping to these very important business leaders to say, I know that American business is concerned about the conditions for doing business in China. You're concerned about some of our national security laws. Uh, You know, we should reassure you on this point or this point, we're going to change this policy. I mean, Xi Jinping is not a man to negotiate policy with people like business leaders, but it was very, very bland, kind of painting by the numbers, sort of, you know, we are open for business, we want to be friends. And I think there was a sense that there was a bit of disappointment, actually, that Xi Jinping didn't seem to be as focused on wooing these American businesses as you might expect. And I think there is a real question mark about whether Xi Jinping fundamentally wants to stay completely open to America or whether he actually just wants certain key technologies that he doesn't have access to without getting them from America. But generally, the direction of travel for the last couple of years has been ever more explicit statements from Xi Jinping that China needs to be self-reliant and must not be dependent on America for anything important because America is trying to contain and choke and hold China down. And I think the reality is that is what he thinks. That is what the machine here thinks about America. And, you know, his warm words were very, very bland and lacked the sort of detail that might reassure business enough to start investing again in a really serious way, at least for the short term. One last word on this. In the hours following the summit between Xi and Biden, news of an imminent panda return during the dinner after the day-long summit, President Xi said the return of pandas would deepen friendly ties between our peoples. We will keep you updated on that. 
Let's move on to Ukraine, where fighting continues more than 20 months after Russia's full-scale invasion. The Ukrainian administration's Andrei Yermak spoke Monday on behalf of his country at the Hudson Institute. That's a think tank in Washington, and he says Ukraine's army has claimed gains in the war against Russia. Against all odds, Ukraine's defense forces have gained a foothold on the left bank bank of the Dnieper, step by step. We have demilitarized Crimea. We have covered 70% of the distance. And our counteroffensive is development. Jack, what do we know about the state of play here when it comes to Ukraine's strategy to reclaim Crimea, which I should remind everyone Russia annexed in 2014? Well, let's start with Yermak's comments and, and what they've taken back. So we don't know everything, but we know that the Ukrainians have at least taken another bite across the Dnipro River. Now, that's an important milestone because that's near Kherson, where Ukrainian troops had basically been stopped. That was basically the the largest city uh, that the Russians were actually able to take and occupy for a significant number of months after the 2022 full-scale invasion. So that could be a potential break in the stalemate. We've seen the Russians retreat a little bit further, the the Russians acknowledging some of these gains, but not all of them. It's important to, to note this for Ukraine as a milestone, too, because we haven't seen a, a major Ukrainian victory that they can footstop during the counteroffensive, and we're five months in. What's really shifted American public debate and moreover Western public debate over the past 18 months now has been these, these major victories, has been Ukrainian troops actually coming into Russian-occupied soil on their homeland, taking it back, flying the Ukrainian flag. And that's what's gotten the public moving. That's what's gotten Western trains of ammunition, artillery, and, and tanks moving to Ukraine. Now, all that being said, we see potentially more of a stalemate developing, and the Ukrainians are, are quite honest about that. Uh, Valery Zeluzhny, their top military advisor, said that because of the technology, because of the defensive walls that the Russians have been able to, able to put up over the six mile, 600-mile-long front line, they're not going to see a quote-unquote deep and beautiful breakthrough. So that break into Crimea may take a little bit longer than, uh, than the Ukrainians at least had hoped for. Let's turn now to the UK. A plan between the UK and Rwanda crumbled this week, but UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is determined to save it. To say by being here is that we will continue to give you the moral support, the diplomatic support, the economic support, but above all, the military support that you need, not just this year and next year, but however long it takes. That's British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on Wednesday last year. The British government announced a plan to send asylum seekers on a one-way flight to Rwanda, the landlocked country in East Central Africa. No flights have happened, but the British government has paid Rwanda at least £140 million. That's roughly $175 million in the deal. The first attempted deportation flight last year was blocked by the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, France. And this week, the UK's Supreme Court said the plan is unlawful. So Joyce, why is Prime Minister Sunak so determined for this to happen? Uh, Well, for Sunak, this is his flagship uh, plan, his flagship legislation. But what we saw this week from the Supreme Court, what uh, you mentioned about the European Court is a big setback uh, for the plan. The the decision uh, from the uh, British Supreme Court is it's unanimous. So all the judges ruled it as uh, as illegal. Uh, they said that this is a risk for uh, asylum seekers to be uh, to be uh, 
sent to uh, to Rwanda, uh, it's uh, it's also was seen against a violation of uh, international law and uh, British own, own laws. At the same time, uh, for Sunak, this is uh, this is you know appealing to his party, to the conservative base uh, ahead of uh, a crucial election. He also had claimed in the past that it would save the government uh, the government money. Now, looking at the numbers, uh, he could still make uh, the case. So, uh, according to uh, to BBC, uh, while uh, more than forty five thousand uh, people use the English uh, channel uh, uh, route to come to the UK in 2022 uh, that number has dropped now by uh, by two uh, thirds uh, so th- when it comes to uh, to the uh, anti-immigration, anti-illegal immigration policy that Sunak is is uh, pushing. It is resonating mostly with his party, but at this time, this is a huge legal setback. He can't go around it because he has to clear it with the courts before he sends any people to uh, to Rwanda. He is negotiating with the government in, in Rwanda to get to a bilateral arrangement that could be an agreement between the two countries. Of course, the architect of this plan, former Home Secretary Suella Braverman, was sacked this week. That led to the cabinet shuffle that had David Cameron reemerge. David Rennie, what's the Sunak's plan here ahead of general elections scheduled in 2024? What was your reaction when you heard David Cameron and he popped out? I mean, look, if I was going to be as charitable as I could possibly be, he is very experienced. Uh, he knows you know, lots of world leaders. He is a grown-up. What's the but uncharitable the take? Is, you know, what, yeah. Okay, so that's that's as good as I get. You know, <laughs> some prime ministers grow when they leave office. Uh, I think, you know, John Major is one, Gordon Brown is another. Uh, some just kind of shrink and vanish away to almost nothing. And that has been David Cameron since he uh, resigned after uh, calling for a referendum on uh, the, the, the European Union, losing the referendum. And he promptly resigned. And since then, he's basically been taking part in various more or less quite sleazy uh, business activities that have got him quite close to some quite sort of dangerous scandals. Suddenly he's back. Why is the Conservative government in such trouble in terms of foreign policy? Well, one big reason is that Brexit has been a predictable disaster for British influence around the world. And he was the guy that decided it was a smart political move to call a referendum and then bungled that referendum and lost it. So he leads a foreign policy that has never looked weaker in sort of modern British history. And it's his fault. So I think that's a reasonable complaint uh, to put against him. Generally, the reshuffle, the backdrop is that uh, Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, is 20-something points behind, 21 points, I think, behind the opposition Labour Party at the moment. And at this point in a government, when they are, you know, they have to have an election by the end of next year, you try and, you know, uh, do what you can to minimise uh, your kind of internal opponents. And the very hardline uh, Home Secretary, Interior Minister, as you say, Suella Braverman, who had dreamed up this uh, sleazy scheme to try and ship asylum seekers to be processed uh, in uh, in Rwanda. She has also been, you know, deliberately basically picking hard right fights to please uh, the party base. She, she picked some very unpleasant fights where she accused the police of uh, allowing hate marches uh, to, to disrupt the, the Remembrance Sunday War Memorial uh, ceremonies in London. The police pushed back and said, these are legal marches. We don't actually have a legal right to stop these things. She was then sacked for this and other 
offences. She's basically preparing to try and run for the Tory party, uh, you know, leadership herself after the next election. I'm afraid we're in the kind of the final moving the deck chairs around on the deck of the Titanic stage of this British government. And David Cameron, at least he did one interesting thing. His first trip overseas was he went to Ukraine and he did actually say some quite uh, sensible, perfectly sensible things uh, when he met uh, uh, the President Zelensky and then went to Odessa uh, to see the damage uh, in that port city caused by Russian missiles. So, you know, he at least looks the part, but that's that's about as good as it gets. David, we actually have some audio of that visit. Again, this is new Foreign Secretary David Cameron uh, paying a visit to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Thursday. The audio is a little scratchy here. That's the security detail just opening the door for David, David Cameron. Cameron. So this idea, however long it takes, Jack, what are you watching for here as Cameron re-enters global politics as foreign secretary? Well, I mean, however long it takes, actually unpacking what that means, because the Ukrainians, of course, have, have shown renewed capabilities we, we've talked about to take some bites out of Russian-occupied territory. The question is how far they can go and on what timeline. The Ukrainians are insisting this counteroffensive isn't over. They're going to continue through the winter, uh, and they're going to be able to fight through the winter, even though the Russians have stockpiled more ammunition, some of their precision ammunition, basically to target Ukrainian critical infrastructure and make this winter as hard as possible on the Ukrainians. But you're really looking for how is the West going to respond in terms of this long-term support. Obviously, the U.S. now in Congress uh, facing a huge debate over whether to actually pass the $60 billion that Biden has requested. Congress is out for two weeks. The Republican Party is very fractured on this. Um, so can this support actually hold? Can the center of gravity actually hold uh, until victory? I mean, that is a huge question. Joyce, as we're talking about the winter in Ukraine, we're seeing colder temperature temperatures set in. Ground fighting might slow down, but we know that Ukraine's energy minister has issued a warning to Russia about striking at its energy grid. What are we thinking about electricity, fuel, how much that's going to play a role in the conflict this winter? Uh, well, Naila, this would be the third winter that Ukraine would face since, uh, since the war. Uh, I know. Oh, it's it's hard to, it's hard to imagine third right? winter. Yeah, and the the expectation is it's going to be a harsh winter so uh, people are uh, stocking up uh, firewood, candles, some have installed solar panels, uh, got generators as you've mentioned Ukrainian uh, officials already warned that the infrastructure the energy inf infrastructure has been targeted more than uh, 60 times uh, in recent uh, in recent week uh, weeks last winter Russia targeted uh, the infrastructure, the energy facilities more than a thousand times. So uh, the preparation is uh, starting in place to protect as much as they can the, their uh, energy facilities and energy uh, and energy sector. But as we step back a little bit and look at that war, uh, David Cameron's visit, everybody is preparing for the long uh, haul. Uh, the West, the Russians, and uh, other allies uh, of Ukraine. Uh, but yeah, as far as this winter is concerned, just uh, buckle up uh, when it comes to the energy sector in the country.
Let's turn from talking about winter to summer in Brazil. On Tuesday morning, Rio recorded its highest heat index ever, 137 degrees Fahrenheit. Brazilians turned on their fans and AC units to cool down, causing power outages across the country. Meanwhile, politics got heated further south in Argentina. That's where a a runoff presidential election is scheduled to take place on Sunday. Two candidates remain. Neither earned the 45 percent of votes necessary to win back in October. Jack, who's left here? Well, Argentina has culled down the field to two candidates, and they basically have a choice between the status quo and, for lack of a better word, the status no. This is Sergio Massa, the the ruling economy minister from the Peronist Party, and Javier Molay. He's kind of like a loudmouth, wild-haired, Trump-like libertarian outsider who has a knack for whipping out a chainsaw at his rallies to fire up the crowd and make this message of slashing state spending. Now, Argentina becomes kind of a bellwether here on the continent uh, because you have inflation heading up towards 150 percent. That's going to make the the uphill fight for Massa and the establishment extremely difficult uh, in this race. Uh, They've really called for a more global regional trading approach, but they might be facing some of the economic headwinds from this. So Argentina has a choice. Uh, Do they plant more trees or do they cut down the forest? David, what global impact will we see from the results of this Argentinian presidential election? I mean, Argentina has been a basket case of an economy for a long time, but the you know the the impact of this is fascinating and pretty scary. Argentina currently owes the IMF forty four billion dollars, and it doesn't have anything like that to pay back. Uh, Javier Millet, the extremely irresponsible kind of wild uh, libertarian, as Jack says, his plan is to uh, dollarize the economy because uh, that would certainly bring down inflation because suddenly Argentina would no longer be setting its own interest rates. It basically had to use whatever the Federal Reserve interest rate was. But the problem is you can't just kind of magic dollars out of nowhere to dollarize your economy and to say, we're no longer going to use Argentinian pesos, we're going to use the US dollar. You need a lot of dollars, like $40 billion is the estimate that even Malays people put out. Argentina doesn't have it. In the wings at the moment, we see China offering things like swap lines. So currently, uh, the Argentine central bank is borrowing money Uh, Chinese money from the Chinese. And you can see that this whole kind of world of turbulence where you have these sort of this multi-turbulent world facing conflicts and economic crises on so many continents. And as so often, when the kind of the established powers like the, the Americans, but also established powers like the International Monetary Fund, when their ability to kind of enforce the old consensus starts to waver, you see countries like China stepping in and wooing middle powers like Argentina and saying, well, maybe you don't have to take pain after all. Maybe there are magic solutions that involve pushing back on the Washington consensus. So I think Argentina's woes are terrible for Argentina, but they're also a larger lesson about the way that the world is becoming very, very much harder to manage. And countries like China, uh, where I am, are absolutely ready to try and take advantage of that. We've got time for one more story. So let me ask you, do you recognize this voice? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, to the sad story of poor Jean. He was rich, chic and had everything he wanted, except love. That's the late French singer Edith Piaf, appearing on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1956. Well, this week, we learned Warner Music will use archival tape of Piaf to produce an AI recreation of her voice, which will narrate an upcoming animated biopic. Joyce, this comes in the wake of new SAG-AFTRA, the new SAG-AFTRA contract, which has protections around AI. What did you make of this news? 
well, I mean, I, it, it was good to see that her family, her estate has signed off uh, to that. This comes one week after uh, the Beatles' latest release, Now and Then. Uh, but this is uh, really our window to the to the future. I think as we, as we go forward, we're going to see more uh, AI input, uh, you know, la vie on... La vie on AI, la vie on ChatGPT, uh, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. But this is uh, this is what we're looking at. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Beatles uh, now and then got uh, uh, great ratings. And uh, we'll see what how, how this turns out. And uh, yeah, if we go and see it, actually. Well, do you guys remember that uh, Anthony Bourdain movie of a few years ago where they, they used AI segments of his voice? And I still to this day can't distinguish what the AI segments were. And now you have this, what, release of a, a Drake and Weekend song that was an AI song. Indistinguishable, much catchier than what they'd produce in real life. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the creativity of our AI overlords. David, we're almost out of time. I'd love to hear the Chinese angle on this. Look, I think, you know, the amount of disinformation that China pumps out already, you know, wait for AI disinformation, which sounds like a Western politician saying something they didn't say. A big thank you to our panelists this hour, David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, co-host of the Drum Tower podcast, Joyce Cottom, Senior News Editor at El Monitor. She also writes the China Middle East Briefing Newsletter and Jack Tatch, Pentagon and National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. My Kid is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Kellen Quigley. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Budu from Axios. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.